what do you believe? Uh, you know, as we talk about what we believe, certainly James talks to us about faith without works is dead. That's true. And matter of fact, uh, there are plenty of opportunities here that our church is helping uh, to minister, people to minister to people in the community and giving us opportunities to make an impact. Some of them are very simple. Uh, some of them are blankets. Matter of fact, uh, uh, David and Fred Vier and some other folks have helped us uh, provide blankets and buy blankets for the uh, homeless uh, downtown, and that's something that you and your family can do, can purchase a blanket uh, that will go directly to meet that need. Uh, we also are working with Chin refugees or who are refugees uh, who have had to leave because of their faith, because they have proclaimed that they are Christians. And so my family had the opportunity to go and deliver uh, a basket. We put some baskets together Friday night. Some of you came and helped with that, and there'll be others that are doing it this weekend. And uh, we still need about 40 more families that would go. And, and can I tell you, I took my children, and I really think it has a profound impact. They don't say a whole lot, but you walk into an apartment uh, that, quite frankly, uh, is below the po- well below the poverty line. And as we start to talk to some of the children, we recognize that all they have is sandals. None of them had a coat. Uh, I mean, it was just a great eye-opener for my kids. And I know, let me say this, I know that your children aren't entitled. And I know that your children, that you've done a great job making sure that your children appreciate all that they have. But I'm a, I'm a loser pastor, and I've not done as good a job as you. But if you can identify with me at all, I would highly, highly encourage you to take your children. I really do. I, I think it's a big deal. And I think if your kids only get gifts this year, and they only put something in the offering plate, that they will have missed an incredible opportunity of what God has called us to be. So here's an opportunity for you to go individually or as a family, or if you've got kids, let me just make a bold statement. If you have kids, you must go, okay? Unless you can say, my kid is so much like Jesus, he doesn't need it. We're doing other things. Then good for you. But otherwise, please do not complain how entitled your children are when you have these opportunities placed in your lap and we say, we need you. We need you to come pick up a basket. We're not even asking for money. That'd be great if you help, but we're not even asking. Will you go and deliver? And we're going to get it done, okay? I'm talking about you missing out on a blessing. So I want to encourage you. Now, that feeds right into what um, was going on in the media today. Uh, you all know the story. Uh, several evangelicals said this is a call for our nation to pray, for us to pray and to seek the heart of God and to ask God to heal our land. And we pray that. And the response from the New York Times and by s- some other officials said, hey, it, it's time for to stop these meaningless platitudes. Prayer, forget the prayer. It's time for you to do something. And while I think it's important, again, for us to stand, to voice, and to vote, and to do whatever we need to do as Christians, what they're ultimately saying is, we don't believe in prayer. We don't believe that prayer makes a difference. We don't believe that the prayers move the heart of God or that it makes any impact. That's what's ultimately being said. And I would say as Christians, we do believe that prayer works. We do believe that prayer moves the heart of God. It's the way that he revealed to in his word that he wants us to speak to us, that he wants us to seek him. The problem is not that prayer doesn't work, is that we don't pray. If evangelical Christians, if Christians, all those who call themselves Christians, would humble themselves and pray and seek the heart of God and ask God's hand to be upon our nation, to break our hearts and to break us from our sin 
and ask for the gospel to transform lives and for us to share the hope that's within us, I do believe that we would see a transformation in our nation. I do believe that prayer works. I do believe that the truth of Scripture, the power and the Spirit of God that is sovereign and works over us, I do believe we would see a change and an impact. So it's not a question, does prayer work? It's not a question, does God see and does God intervene? The question is, do we really pray? That's the real question. Now, in keeping with that, I mentioned earlier, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And today, I want to talk to you about what do you believe? This is the season that I keep seeing the magazines. Every year, the magazines come out. Newsweek always has an article, who was is, who is Jesus really? And was he really born in a manger? Was he really from Bethlehem? Are his teachings real? Or is it something that, is it simply a fable? And certainly, people are writing books about how Jesus never existed, which is the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. You have to at least admit he was uh, that he existed and that he taught, or quite frankly, you're an idiot. I mean, even Bart Ehrmans, who's the famous atheist, who's written countless books uh, debunking Christianity as we know it, he said, that's the most ridiculous statement I have. If, if you, and again, this is an atheist saying it. He said, if you can't believe Jesus existed, you can't believe any history. Because we have more evidence pointing toward Jesus Christ than anything else we have, than any other figure in history of antiquity. All right? So that's just a fact. So the question becomes, what do we believe? Now, let me ask you this. It, it appears that there are ties uh, to uh, Muslim terrorists or, or, or ISIS terrorists. Um, what is it that a Muslim believes that is different from what a Christian believes? Can I tell you some things? If I shared these things with you, would you say you believe them? Let me tell you some things that Muslims believe. Number one, they believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. He was born of Mary. You believe that? Muslims believe that as well. Jesus performed miracles. They believe that Jesus performed miracles. They believe that Jesus is going to return again one day. Muslims believe that Satan is real and the demonic spirit is real. They believe that there's an antichrist that will appear before Jesus returns. These are all basic Muslim teachings, okay? They believe in the day of judgment where everyone will give an account for what they've done. That's a Muslim belief. We believe that as Christians. And they believe that Jesus was a Messiah. Now, as those are listed, what else do you believe besides that? You know, as the Bible tells us in James chapter 2, you believe in God, you believe big deal. The demons believe and fear at the trembling of his name, or, or tremble at the fear of his name. So what else do you believe? Well, let me tell you some things that Muslims don't believe that we believe as Christians. We believe as followers of Christ. First of all, we believe that Jesus Christ was crucified, was buried, and then on the third day he rose again. Muslims don't believe that. They believe that Judas was used as a substitute and basically um, everybody just kind of thought it was Jesus. All right? Uh, Number two, they don't believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They believe in Allah, but they don't believe in the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. So when we say Jesus, we're talking about God. When we say Holy Spirit, we're talking about God. When we say Father, we mean God. We believe that Jesus is God. 
Let me tell you, that's, that's a principle you ought to write down and just tuck in the back of your mind uh, because when other um, belief systems that are similar to Christianity come to you, uh, that's always my go-to. I'll always just confront. You know, you've had people knock on your door before um, from different various backgrounds. They knock on your door and they start trying to build the similarities. Here's the one question you should always ask them. Do you believe that Jesus is God? That's a distinguishing difference right there, that we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. We believe that Jesus atoned for our sin, that he covered our sin, that there had, we had to have our sin forgiven. The sacrifice of lambs and animals was used in the past, but Jesus covered our sin so that a holy God could accept us as pure and clean because our sins were atoned for, were covered. And we also believe, as Muslims do not believe, that salvation is achieved through faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Those are imperatives. Those are things that you have to affirm and you have to know as Christians. Those are the basics. Now, let's talk about the second tier. These are very important doctrines. Now, I'm going to give you... The, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to give you the elementary word. In other words, the year, words that we actually use. I, I will give you uh, the seminary, the theological terms to go with it if you care. Uh, what I found is most times people don't care. Uh, but I, I will give them to you just in case you're an overachiever. All right, the first one is God. Now, the, the theology term that we use for that is theology proper. Theo, meaning God in Latin, theology, the study of. You know it from biology, from other things that you study. Ology is the study of. Theo is God. So the study of God, particularly God the Father, okay? That's the first one we know from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, that God says, I am the Lord thy God. There is no other God besides me. We believe that he alone is God. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. When we say God the Trinity, we believe in God and God alone. Number two, Christ, Christology, the study of Christ. Uh, We believe that the logos, that God became flesh, that, the, that God came to this world and to this earth, according to John chapter 1, and the logos became flesh. The word, the essence of God became flesh and dwelt among man. We believe in the Holy Spirit. You won't ever hear Muslims talk about the Holy Spirit. You won't hear a lot of different people talk about the Holy Spirit. Well, we believe, believe in the Holy Spirit. Pneumatology, the study of the Spirit. Pneumatology, and so we certainly believe that. And if you go and you look at John chapter 14, verse 1, 2, and 3, uh, and we look at John 14, uh, 16 specifically, um, the Bible talks about Jesus said, hey, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send the paraclete. I'm going to send a helper who will stay with you, who will work with you, according to the gospel, John chapter 14. There, then there's sin. Now, this is another big theology term called homardiology. Homardiology. <clears throat> and homardiology is the study of sin. We believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3.23. Everyone has sinned. Uh, I remember, you probably, I've talk, probably told a story before where a lady came by my house one time and said, been listening to you preach unless you say, but she goes, I just want you to know that I, I am not a sinner. I don't sin. I said, well, that's interesting. Tell me more about that, how you don't sin. And uh, we talked about that, and I said, you know, this is a 
fundamental doctrine that you're going to have to come to reality that you recognize that you sin and that you have a need. She goes, I don't see it. Can I tell you, until you can come to that place where you recognize you're a sinner and that you need Christ, then we can't, quote, be saved. We can't experience the mercy and forgiveness of God. Man, what is your belief about man in this age and culture that we live in right now? Where everybody looks and says, or not everybody, but many people say, you know, man, man and humanity just came about through coincidence, through random chance. Uh, but the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that God created man in his own image. The Imago Dei, the image of God. He did it on purpose. He did it by design. It wasn't an accident. It was intentional. So we believe that about man. That study, of course, you know, is anthropology, the study of man. The church itself, ecclesiology, the study of church. If you went to Matthew chapter 16, you would see where Jesus asked Peter this question. He says, Peter, who do men say that I am? Well, Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Yet others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus said to Peter, Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? I say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter Barjona. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Spirit of God. And upon this rock, upon that proclamation, I will build my church we believe in the end times, big word called eschatology, the study of end times, the church, but the end times that Jesus is coming again. I mentioned to you John chapter 14, which is so rich in theology. In verse 2 and 3, uh, Jesus said, hey, I'm going, but I'm going to come again because I prepared a place for you. And where I am, you may also be, and I'll come again to receive you. There, there's an end. There's another life. There's another world. Jesus, uh, God, our Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have created a new earth. They are going to create a new earth and that there is a heaven and there is a presence that we're going to go to for all those who know him as Lord and Savior. And we believe again that Jesus will come again, just like he did the first advent. Christmas, we celebrate the first advent. We're celebrating the second advent that Jesus is coming again. The Bible, Bibliology, the study of the Bible. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16, what does the Bible tell us? It tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine, for, for reproof, uh, and for teaching. Also, salvation, soteriology, the study of salvation. Uh, and we believe uh, Jesus made it very clear in John 14.6. What did he say? There's that gospel of John 14 again. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. Uh, also in Ephesians 2.8, the Bible makes it clear. We, by grace we are saved through faith. That's how we're saved. And that's important what we believe. And then last, angels, uh, angelology. And he's talking about demons and angels. Uh, demons particularly, you see that in uh, the spirit world in Ephesians chapter 6. When Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities of darkness. Uh, that the spirit realm exists, and we, we believe that. So Luke is a firsthand scholar 
uh, Dr. Luke. Uh, matter of fact, Luke is a Gentile. We, we pretty much know that. He's the one Gentile writer of the Gospels. And uh, he's a doctor. He is a first-rate historian. There's a guy named Sir Walter Ramsey who was uh, regarded as one of the greatest archaeologists of modern times. He lived in uh, the middle of the 1800s up to the early 1900s. And uh, he was doing all kind of archaeological digs in the Palestinian area. And, and he really didn't give any credence or credibility to Scripture. But uh, just by a kind of whim, he began to study the book, book of Luke and then the book of Acts. And as he studied it, he came to this conclusion. He goes, historically, this is the greatest document of antiquity from the Palestinian era that we have. He said, uh, I'm saying this with a guy with a Ph.D. from Oxford. And he began to read Luke and he began to see, look, there are over... Um, there are over 60 cities that are mentioned that we can verify. Um, there are 27 countries. He started finding countless individuals. And literally every one he could go back and verify. And he said there wasn't a single error. His Greek was impeccable. His writing, his historical documentation. And he said as we began to dig and find, we, all it did was further claims in the validity and the, uh, the excellence of history written by Dr. Luke. Again, here's Dr. Luke. We know the Gospels, they kind of go like this. Matthew, uh, written by Matthew, okay, that was his account. Uh, but then John, his account. And then Mark, it was by John Mark, who was a protege of uh, Peter. And a uh, matter of fact, Peter calls him his son in the ministry. But Luke, who did he bond with? He was kind of, it was Paul's writer. Matter of fact, we have an extra biblical documents that uh, Paul even refers to Luke as his gospel. So he's given an account. And he does that in a very historic, a very academic way. Matter of fact, let's look at Luke chapter 1, beginning with the first verse, and let's look and see what Dr. Luke has to say. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have happened, he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Now catch that. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. This is Luke saying, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, speaking of the apostles of the word, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account or a systematic account for you, most excellent Theopolis, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, who's Theopolis? Theopolis is a Roman official. Theo means God. Opolis, he is lover of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he was a Christian when he was named, all right? The Greeks were uh, very religious. Theopolis, when they talked about God, they could have talked about uh, whoever their God was. So, but that's his name, Theopolis, and he is a, uh, a Roman leader. He is a Roman official. Uh, is what the evidence seems to point to, and he's been converted, but he's been given all this information. And Luke says, look, I, am, I, have, I have studied, I have researched, I have interviewed, and particularly, if you go back, let's go back and look at verse 2 and 3. In verse 2 he says, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Luke is going to make this mention of eyewitnesses. And in ancient times, and even really today, but in ancient times, the most credible form of history or truth or factual information was an eyewitness. Somebody that you could go and talk to who said, I saw it happen. I saw the miracles of Jesus. I saw Jesus after he was crucified. That was the most credible form of of witness or of factual information that you could have. And Luke goes and talks to them. He talks to the apostles and he talks to other people. And what's fascinating about Luke is he will mention all these different names that historically we can go back and know that they existed. In 
And what's, why is that such a big deal? Because you could go and find those people and say, hey, did this really happen? Did you really see this? Such as Simon, who carried the cross for Jesus. And later, who his son, Rufus and Alexander, who we see mentioned throughout the Scripture. We see in Acts, and Luke talks about them. You could go and ask those people and say, did you really see Jesus die? Did you really see him after he died? And all it would take would be for us to have one shred of evidence that said, hey, they they mentioned my name, but I never saw that. And we don't have any of that. We don't have any of that. So it's very important, the eyewitness testimony. And Luke said, hey, I've put a lot of study, a lot of thought, a lot of time, and I've spoken to the eyewitnesses and the ministers. And I'm giving you a systematic and orderly account, a historical documentation here for you to believe. There are good reasons for you to believe. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is Luke again. Uh, By the way, of course, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in the book of Acts, and uh, these were his letters. As a matter of fact, it, it, for the, it, in the earlier times in antiquity, uh, they were all put together, but uh, two separate letters, and uh, they're put together. And they are, uh, matter of fact, that makes up the majority of the New Testament, by the way, in, as far as sheer volume. Now, we have more books by the Apostle Paul, but if you took Luke, which is the longest gospel, and the book of Acts, which is the longest, uh, Luke and Acts are the two longest books in the New Testament, in sheer volume, he actually wrote more of the New Testament than Paul did. So, with that understanding, here it is. He said, in the first book, speaking of the gospel of Luke, O Theopolis, lover of God, the Roman official, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, After he had given the commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself, what? Alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Now, this is also the Greek word that we get for infallibility. Through through many infallible truths, proofs, okay? Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke is, again, giving us the information. He's making it clear. He also will mention several people, and uh, he said, I've, I've, I've witnessed them. I've, I've talked to them. I've spoken to them. And uh, it all comes together. And this is why I believe, oh, great Theopolis. All right, with that understanding, I want us to think about a couple things uh, because there are three expressions that you hear today, there are three things that are stated. As you will, if you pick up a magazine, if you're in the grocery store and you see a magazine about Christmas, you're going to hear one of these three things. I hear it all the time. There are three things that are out in the public that have pretty much become regarded as truth in our culture today and that are discrediting to Christianity. The first one is this. You know what? After Jesus died, legends developed and changed the truth about who Jesus really was. Yes, he existed, but, you know, uh, legends have developed. It's been greatly embellished. And um, so what, we don't really know exactly what Jesus said, and a lot of this has just been made up and just added throughout history. So that's one thing. And that, that is a common belief amongst uh, most people today, to be honest with you. Uh, that's a very accepted viewpoint, particularly in secularism today. Number two. There were a lot of other Gospels that were hidden from the people, that were taken out. And there were a lot of other Gospels that ought to be considered, and those have just been thrown out. But they, were, they, they, could, they should have had just as much validity as well. Okay? A lot of people, if you, talk, if you turn on TBS or, T, excuse me, yeah, TBS or one of those stations, you'll hear these religious programs and people are going to talk about, what about all these other Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary? 
And then the fourth one, the other one is this. In the fourth century, a bunch of Christian leaders got together, which is called the Council of Nicaea. They got together, and um, they put all this together, and they decided what would be in the Bible, and they took out anything that would discredit them or their authority or their leadership, and they took it out, or anything that made the early church fathers look bad, and they just kept what made them look good and helped them to retain power. Those that they affirmed, Peter, Paul, they just kept what, what made them look good. And so those are common, uh, those are common thoughts, com- common ideas today about the Bible and about the reality of Christianity. And you will hear it all the time. But we know uh, there are good reasons. By the way, you can believe the Bible not just because you grew up in church, by the way but because there is good history behind it as well as it being the divine revelation of God, okay? So let's talk about those three issues for just a moment. First of all, the historical truth of the gospel. When people say uh, it's just been embellished, we don't really know what Jesus said. I mean, that was all written a long time after Jesus. Uh, we can't, there's nothing reliable we have. As a matter of fact, those books were written hundreds and hundreds of years later. Well, um, here's what you can tell them. First of all, uh, Luke is writing here, and he's saying, look, I had eyewitnesses during this time. And people would say, well, Luke was written a long time after Jesus. Really? Well, people used to say that a lot till about the uh, end of the 18th century, 19th century right there. Uh, the problem was is there was something called P-52. It's called the John Ryland Documents. And through archaeological digs, they found copies in Egypt of the Gospel of John parts of the gospel of John and when they dated them and these are secular archaeologists and when they dated them they said these were written sometime between 90 and 110 AD 90 and 110 AD and not only that they're hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the Palestinian area remember they didn't have mail uh, they didn't have cars or trains or planes or anything like that how did you get it you walked or you rode a donkey and to write seven or 800 miles, it's not like they wrote that book, get this to Egypt and bury it, okay? Archaeologists know, hey, it would have taken decades for those manuscripts. And these are copies of copies, by the way. These are not the originals. These are copies of copies that have found themselves in Egypt, and they're, they're written somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D. So let's just say it's 100 A.D. Everybody, every scholar, every secular scholar would say John was the last gospel written so you've got John, then you have Luke, then you have Matthew. Some debate whether Matthew was first, but then Mark. Well, if that was written a minimum of 90 A.D. of John, then, then it stands to reason as we look at the evidence of how, how Luke was written that it must have been written between 70 and 80. Then you come down to Matthew between 60 and 70, and then you get to Mark between 50 and 60. Now you're talking about 15 years after Jesus died. All those people that are being mentioned, it was written right then. So it's not embellishment. It's not hundreds of years later. And that's a fact. And so when you say, oh, we don't have accurate accounts, yeah, we do from Jesus' time and from people who saw and witnessed these occasions. So there's good reason to believe that. So that's a ridiculous argument to say, through time, all these things got at it. Number two, well, you know, the time of the gospel's writings, and uh, when we look at this, these, these eyewitness accounts, um, you know, the eyewitness accounts that we have, you know, Luke mentions Bartimaeus, the blind guy. 
Hey, you could have gone to Bartimaeus and say, did he really heal you? What about Malchus? Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter takes out his sword and he slices off the ear? But we know from the Gospels that his name was Malchus. Now, he probably wasn't a big fan of Peter's. But he probably would have, you know, all they would have to do is go find Malchus because his name is clearly written in Scripture and say, did Malchus, did this happen? We don't see any discreditation from that. We don't see that. We see, uh, we see Simon, uh, the guy who carried the cross. Uh, we see Salome. We see a lot of different people whose names are given. What about the other Gospels that were written? There were a lot of other Gospels, and this ties into uh, the third point. What about them? Why were they not included? Why were they left out? Why did they get to the Council of Nicaea and just say, those are out? Well, let me tell you why. Because the church had been using what we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for the last 250 years. Those were the accepted books of the Bible. And the other Gospels that you will hear about from the Da Vinci Code and Dan Brown, they write all these books and make all this money, um, those were written two and three hundred years later. Those are the Gospels that were written later, and they're not authentic, okay? They were written by some rogue of it. They certainly weren't written by Thomas. They certainly weren't written by Mary, okay? So those are the older Gospels. And that's why they got thrown out. It wasn't the church was trying to hide it. It said, you know what? These are the established Gospels. And yes, these rogue books have been written for people to make money and start movements for whatever reason, but we're going with the four that we've had all along. And that's why they kept them, and that's why those others were put out okay? Uh, because they are older. Remember, we talked about the dating of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you, if you go back and date these other Gospels, they're hundreds of years later, okay? They're at least 100 years later, some of them 200 and 300 years later. So that's why they were not accepted in the canon. And then the last part at the Council of Nicaea, that, that thought that, well, they just kept what they wanted to make them look good, to make those whom they followed look good. Really? There's a principle called, in apologetics called the principle of embarrassment. And it's not something, in other words, you won't use things about you or those whom you are following if it's true. You're not going to say embarrassing things about them. You want to shed them in the best light possible. That's what we see in all our Roman writing and Roman historians. They made sure that they look good, okay? But you don't see that in the Gospels. For example, you've got Peter, the leader of the church. And what does he do? He denies Jesus three times. Then you got Peter having a fight with Paul in the book of Galatians. Why? Because he's eating with Gentiles who've, been, who've not been circumcised. And so Paul and Peter get into this big tift. And then you got Paul, uh, who's slightly abrasive, who says, John Mark, he can't, he can't travel with me anymore because he left at one point, and later on he forgives him, but he, uh, you know, he's so impatient that he, he just cast him off. And what about Jesus? I mean, the follow, you think about twice with Jesus. He's at the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does Jesus say? Father, if there be another way, let this cup pass from me. And if that's not enough, he's on the cross, and his fully, remember, he's fully God and he's fully man, and what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Look, you don't ever see, you don't ever see Muhammad saying that, okay? You don't, you, the teachings of Buddha, the followers of Buddha or of Hindu, you don't see another religion it's the principle of embarrassment. You wouldn't put that in there if you were trying to make Jesus look good, if you're trying to make Paul and Peter, if you were trying to create a legend of which you could utilize for your benefit, you wouldn't have put that in there. So those are just really, in my opinion, ridiculous arguments, but they're known as mainstream facts today. That leaves us 
to the essentials of the gospel. What are the essentials? What are the things that we have to believe to be Christians? What are the essentials? Well, let's talk about them. You know, I ask, I've been meeting with students, and this is one of the questions I'll often ask them, and I'll often ask adults sometimes this question. So tell me, I asked my staff last week, what are the essentials? What are the things that I have to believe to be regarded as a Christian, to know that I'm a Christian? What are the things that are essentials? Let me give them. It's the gospel of salvation. Here it is. First of all, we must all confess that we're sinners. We must come to that place where we recognize that we've sinned and we're sinners. The Bible says that, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. It's a necessity. Number two, confess that Jesus is our God and Savior. We don't just think he was a great teacher. We don't just think he's Lord, but we believe he is God and that he has the power to save. We believe he was crucified, died, and buried, and rose on the third day. It was necessary for him to come and to die on our behalf, and he conquered sin and death, and we place our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And fourthly, we trust that by grace alone we are saved through our faith, and it's not of ourselves. It's not our works. You know, the, um, the Muslim believes that they have to accomplish the five pillars of Islam, uh, that they have to they have to fast. That's part of earning their salvation, their prayers. They do five prayers a day. Um, they have to travel uh, to Mecca. Uh, their charity is an essential part of their salvation, and they believe um, in uh, their profession of faith, that there is one God. He is Allah, and his prophet is Muhammad. Uh, those are declarations, and then they have to do all these things uh, to hopefully find favor from Allah, but we believe it's by grace is a gift of God given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we believe. Is that what you believe? What do you believe? If someone asks you, tell me what you believe, would you simply say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. That's exactly what Muslims say. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus. Um, would you simply say, well, yeah, and I, I believe Jesus did a lot of miracles. Uh, I believe one day he's coming back. I believe he was the Messiah. I believe there's going to be a judgment one day. Muslims believe that as well. What is it that you believe that distinguishes you and defines you as a Christian? We start with what we believe, and then we live what we believe. We have to start with our basic faith. So I ask you this morning, first of all, have you come to that place where you've trusted and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ? You've made a commitment of faith to him, not by what your, your church attendant or what you're doing, by your baptism. I'm saying, have you come to the place where you recognize your need for him? You believe he's the God of the universe, that he came with the power to save, and you've put your faith and your trust in him and what he's accomplished through the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection, and received by grace through your faith in Jesus Christ. If not, I want to invite you to do that this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never said, you know what? Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner, and I need your great forgiveness. I ask you to come in my life and forgive me my sins, and I put my trust in your death, burial, and resurrection, and I ask for your grace to cover me. I believe that you are God. Save me. If you've not made that commitment before, I invite you to make that commitment of faith. And if you're serious about that, I want to ask you to... uh, Write that down today or come and share that with us at the end of this service. And let us help you walk in your new faith. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the blessings of Christmas. We believe in Christmas.
because we believe Christmas, we celebrate the first advent, that God in the flesh came to us. It's not just a nice holiday. It's not just a time to give gifts. But it's a time that we express what we believe, that we believe that Jesus is our salvation, that our hope and our salvation came to earth in the form of man. And he lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. And that's why we celebrate Christmas this season. Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit today, that they would say yes by faith to you today. In your name we pray, dear Jesus. Amen.